river's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. All right, fellas. Welcome to the Track Quest Podcast. Bob, do you want to go ahead and get us started this uh, morning? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, I'm on the road, so sorry if the audio's bad, but we have uh, Zach and Justin on, a couple of our brothers of the bow from Arizona. We've been trying to get these guys on for quite a while, but our schedules haven't lined up, so we appreciate you guys coming on. I kind of wanted to get you on because you guys are going through some of the same stuff we're going through up here in Oregon right now, losing what's left of our archery general seasons down there in Arizona and you guys have some trail cam things going on and and uh I kind of want to talk to talk to you guys about that and uh you know let us know how we can get our listeners to help you out but before we get into that why don't we just get a history kind of from each of you if you could introduce yourself and uh how you got into traditional archery we'll start there go ahead Zach all right that sounds good. Yeah, so uh, I'm I'm from Arizona originally, and um, I I'm actually probably kind of a new com- newcomer relatively into into archery and traditional archery. But um, grew up rifle hunting. I uh, didn't really know anybody that bow hunted except for I did have a couple of buddies growing up that that compound hunted, but for some reason that just never really. Uh, appealed to me. I don't know why. I just never really, it didn't seem like bow hunting as I, as I envisioned it in my mind as a kid. But, um, so in about 2012, when I was finishing school and realized I'd have a little bit more time on my hands, I went out and, uh, got my hands on a recurve and came back to Arizona. And it was the beginning of the December over the counter archery season. And didn't really know anything about it at all other than I, I got myself some arrows and a bow and I didn't know anything about tuning or brace height or arrow setup or anything like that. I just bought myself some arrows and broadheads and and shot a few times in the backyard and I, I went hunting and it's kind of kicked off from there ever since. So, nice. And you, uh, you dabble in the self bows quite a bit, don't you? Um, yeah, for the last, last, I don't know, maybe six or eight years. Yeah. I've been building and hunting with self bows. It's, um, yeah, it's been a heck of a lot of fun. Are you, so, what, are you, what, what, oh, go ahead, Jen. Oh, are you flint napping as well? And, uh, Bob is going to ask what, what woods you're using to build your bows. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I have gotten into flint napping. That's something I've always been interested in since, you know, since I was a kid, even, you know, I found a chunk of obsidian as a kid and trying to chip out arrowheads in my, in my bedroom as a kid and came out, you know, with my fingers all sliced up from obsidian. But, um, now since, you know, social media is a thing and some of that information is more readily available, I'd say in the last couple of years, I've been learning how to do it and I probably still just destroy and break more rocks than anything. But, um, that's kind of, my my own little personal goal in archery is to move towards being able to harvest game with stuff that I've, you know, equipment that I've crafted entirely myself. So, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, as far as self bows and the wood I use, man, I, I've used a bunch of different woods. And uh, when I first got into it, I really didn't know, didn't really know anybody that was doing it. And honestly, I, I, I was living in New Mexico at the time, and there's actually a pretty good group of, of people that shot traditional archery. And that was the first time I actually ran into somebody that, that knew what they were doing as far as traditional archery goes. Um, ran into a guy named uh, Bill Van Buskirk there, who's somebody you guys really ought to think about getting onto this podcast. The guy is, is awesome. He's taken just about everything in North America with, with a long bow. He's a bowyer. And um, he kind of got me introduced in, into the circles and, and of traditional archery and, and other people that do it and are successful at it. And uh, he actually told me about that big, Colorado Traditional Archer Society shoot that they have up there, the high country shoot. Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah, he convinced me that, oh, if you're really into this stuff, you need to go to that. And at that time, I had the recurve that I'd first bought, and I made myself a, a juniper self-bow, which when I made that, my I found a copy of the traditional bowyer's Bible and just kind of read through it and, and made that bow. And... I took it to that shoot and I remember being kind of embarrassed, you know, like walking into the shoot with this bow that I've kind of whittled with my pocket knife basically and feeling like, you know, like the kid that shows up to, I don't know, like a professional mountain bike race or something. And you've got like your old three wheeler from, you know, grade school or something like that. I didn't know that that was a thing that people did. And, um, when I went there, it was kind of like everybody was like, wow, you made that? That was awesome. And I kind of was like, oh, this isn't just like a Boy Scout craft or something. It it kind of got me even more excited just because of the interest. I saw other people, and I actually met a couple other really cool guys there that were into the self bows and gave me some more information and, and helped point me in, in the right direction to make better bows. So, And actually, at that shoot, I wish I, you know, like I said, I didn't really know very many people at that time, but... Um, wish I would have because I bought uh, 50 Sherwood shafts there from the, the Sherwood shaft booth. And so I don't know who the guys were. I don't know if it was Carson that was there or what, but um, I wish I had known a little bit more at that point to be able to chat chat up those guys a little more. Uh, how, I kind of bought the shafts and went on my way. <laughs> how long ago was that? <laughs> um, that would have been probably in about 2013. Right so yeah, there. that would have probably been Carson's father, Rourke Brown. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember I was just walking by, and the guy that was at that booth kind of yelled out, "Like, hey, that's an awesome self bow!" And I was kind of like, "Uh, I don't, I didn't even know what a self bow was, honestly." I just kind of was like, "All right, thanks, man," and I kept on walking. <laughs> and uh, when I came back by, I don't know, maybe the next day or so, I stopped by there, ended up buying some shafts from them. Just great guys. So. Uh, that's 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 super funny zach i have a buddy that i i've took into some compound shoots with our with our you know longbows and he's all feeling kind of like what are these guys gonna think and i'm like they're gonna think that you're walking around with a badass bow that's what they're gonna think (laughs) uh it's pretty funny justin thompson uh of tradbow cronies of arizona why don't you give us an introduction of who you are and how you got into traditional bow hunting? Sure. Um, so for me, it actually started kind of a long time ago. I'm 33, 
and I grew up in a neighborhood that was, you know, a little bit, a little bit rougher on the edges, um, here in Mesa and not that Mesa is a, a rough area or anything, but it's got some patches that can be a little, a little rough. Um, and just as kids, we, we kind of got into archery probably around eight or nine, um, just making our own bows, um, you know, real simple, nothing fancy or anything. We used um, oleander trees or oleander bushes um, and would just, you know, kind of be real, real basic in making them. And uh, we had a guy down the street from us that ended up being one of our, our scout leaders that was a boyer. And he made bows out of um, all kinds of stuff, Osage, Hickory. Um, and he started showing us kind of what he was into and showing us that, you know, archery was more than just sticks with strings on them and um, went, went over to his house and learned a few things from him. And uh, most of our, um, you know, scout outings, because we ended up getting into scouts and everything, most of our scout outings and scout activities revolved around archery and making bows and arrows and all of our campouts, we would take all of our bows and go stoke shooting and um, kind of that was kind of our, our focus as, as scouts growing up. And for the most part, it was, you know, kind of a hobby, not really truly like an interest in hunting. Um, you know, we would just go out and shoot and kind of have fun, just be adventurous out in the mountains and everything and um, never really focused on hunting. Um, and my uncle was really into, um, like rifle hunting and stuff. So I kind of went along with him and that's where I got into hunting was, was with him with a rifle and probably the, the one hunt that got me into realizing that I could actually bow hunt here in Arizona. Cause Arizona is a pretty rough state to, to bow hunt. It's, it's noisy. It's loud. It's, you know, really rugged country. Um, and I was on a, a hunt when I was 18 and we went out and it was the last day of the hunt. It was for Coos Whitetail and probably around 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the early morning. Um, we were kind of almost at that point where we were about to give up and all of a sudden we saw something kind of moving in a juniper and uh, my uncle was like, Hey, we, you know, we, we might have something here and we're kind of watching all of a sudden this really nice, good looking, um, white tail stepped out and it was probably five, 600 yards away. And, um, he told me, he's like, you know, you got to take a chance and, and get this guy, you know, he's a good looking buck. And so I'm like, all right, I haven't ever shot that far, but I'll try. And so I took a shot and man, it was, it was so bad. It was you know, one of those shots that you didn't even see the dust or the dirt flick up from hitting it. And so I was kind of bummed about that. And my uncle was like, well, let's just watch and we'll see where it goes. And maybe we can get you to sneak down closer to it. And so we did that. And um, it only ran probably 50, 60 yards or so and got up underneath another juniper and started raking its antlers and stuff and kind of was able to have it hunker down for a little bit and my uncle said all right let's let's have you go walk up to it get as close as you can and pop another shot 
And so, you know, long story short, I was able to get up really close to it. Um, he kind of guided me right to it. And I got probably within 30, 30 yards or so. And when I brought up my scope to, to nail him, um, you know, all I could see was fur and stuff. And anyway, I popped the shot and, and got him. Um, and from that hunt on, um, I've never hunted with a rifle since. Um, I realized that, you know, I can, I can get stuff with a bow and, um, started hunting with my longbow. I've got a Howard Hill longbow that I bought when I was 18 and been shooting and hunting with it since. Um, and you know, I've never looked back at, at the rifle, nothing against rifle hunting, but it's just one of those things I love to just get as close as I can and, um, be able to see animals up close. Very um, cool. That's so. awesome. Uh, what, what made you start the trad bow cronies of Arizona page? I mean, that's where I found you on Instagram and that page is super awesome. I love the posts you make and I checked out your website and you know, all the quotes from Glenn St. Charles and you know, stuff like that. It's just a really cool thing that, that you're doing, promoting traditional uh, archery and bow hunting. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it actually started. I I just got into Instagram probably. It was it was about last year, um, twenty twenty. It was right right as COVID was hitting uh, pretty hard here in Arizona, and I just graduated nursing school and uh, was getting ready to get into the workforce. And um, you know, I've always read you know traditional bowhunter magazine. I've got um, multiple books goes on a little delta different things and um anyway here in arizona um it was just one of those times we just it was we were almost in complete lockdown and i was just like you know i really like traditional archery i don't know if there's anybody else out there and i just finished reading um goes on a little delta for probably the eighth or ninth time and you know I i was pretty inspired to try to figure out if there was other guys out here in Arizona that hunted with the trad bow was into trad archery. So I just started it out just kind of as a, for fun sort of thing. And, um, I mean, almost immediately Zach responded and got on there and, um, you know, he's, he's a pretty humble stud guy. I mean, he, he's got a lot of success with traditional archery and with stick bows. And I don't know if you guys have, seen all of the stuff that he's gotten but that dude is a, is a pretty amazing guy here in arizona um especially for getting you know whitetails cruise whitetail with a stick bow i mean that's that's crazy um but anyway it just started out as just a little a little thing a little be group. careful justin my, uh, my head won't fit out through the door <laughs> yeah oh man you you've got a little bit of a you know, success there. It's, it's pretty amazing to do, do all that. I mean, anybody that's hunted coos deer, it's, it's hard. It's not an easy thing and stuff. And you've gotten quite a few of them, but anyway, um, you know, it just started out as a little group and realizing that there are a lot more traditional guys here and, um, kind of spread out. We're pretty quiet. Um, not really, too involved with you know any real groups or clubs um but we're trying to get it that way here we're trying to get everybody gathered together and 
move towards a, an actual club. Very cool. That's awesome. And, and, uh, Zach, um, Zach Larson, um, you are on social media, you are on Instagram as hunt school. Um, and we've yeah. talked a little bit over the last couple of years, like wanting to get you on and looks like, um, on your free time, you get some folks together here and there and teach them about hunting and wisdomship skills and stuff like that. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, sure. So, yeah, I mean, wherever I've gone, I've always kind of been identified as that guy that goes hunting all the time. And, you know, even before it was, before I was really deep into the traditional archery, I was really big into, uh, upland game hunting and predator calling and that kind of stuff. And, um, so I've always just had people asking all the time, like, could you take me with you? Would you teach me how to shoot or how to hunt, how to do these things? And so I just can't think of all the numbers of people that I've taken out on their, their first hunt. And it, it's always been a really exciting time and kind of a joy to teach people, at least in the way that I think it should be done. And I've never really been that, that big of a, a trophy hunter per se. And, I, you know, here in Arizona, that really is the thing is, you know, scores and the biggest animals, but I've really had a lot of enjoyment taking, especially young people out, um, or, you know, people who haven't really had any background in hunting and just showing them some of the, the passion and the joy and the mystique of, of just the chase, like chasing and pursuing an animal and then just being grateful uh, when you are successful, regardless of how big it is, you know, even if it's a rabbit or a squirrel or, you know, I love taking people like Havelina hunting because, you know, at that point, it's, they're nothing mad, like antler size doesn't matter at all. It's just, you are pursuing that animal and it's fun. And, um, so that's kind of why I, I started the hunt school was I had visions of maybe doing that on a larger basis even, but you know, around the time I started the, the hunt school page and had kind of a whole model worked out of how I was going to really go after that and just being able to teach people the skills of hunting and introduce people to hunting. I, you know, that's about the time I got married and had a more work responsibilities and, you know, start having kids hit the ground. And so the time for that has been a little bit reduced, but I still just love to take people out. Just, I mean, maybe a week or two ago, uh, I, I took out maybe, I think there's half a dozen young, young guys that were all maybe like around 14 to 16 years old. I took them all out to the archery range and stuck a bow in each one of their hands and handful arrows and taught them to shoot and we walked through a 3d course and that's i just really get a kick out of that teaching people and hopefully uh maybe setting them on the right path of kind of what i i feel is the right way to do it so very cool well, that's awesome it's, uh we definitely appreciate you doing that because you know our community needs to do more mentoring because that's how we grow grow our numbers and show people uh you know, the way of the bow. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, Bob, do we still got you on there? Yeah, I'm here. So I know we want to really get into kind of the politics and what is, uh, you know, the climate uh, in Arizona right now with uh, technology and changing seasons and whatnot. And I know that Bob has hunted Arizona several times and is kind of more up to date on uh, how things work out there. So maybe take it over from here, Bob. Yeah, I guess we could start on 
uh, trail cameras. Maybe you guys could just give us a little history because I know that's been uh, going on the last couple of years, and they just the commission just made a big decision here not not long ago. And I before before we have you guys go, I know we get a lot when we po- repost your stuff on trail cameras. There's a lot of guys that that I think do not if you are not from Arizona or Nevada or you know one of these really arid states that's you know like you said kind of a lot of guides and outfitters and trophy hunting and all those things but if you guys aren't from those states you you know it's it's hard to understand what's really going on in Arizona and you guys know but water scarce and and in Arizona you don't get an elk tag very often and so everybody's a guide which I mean I can't blame them because they like to go hunting and every guide has 100 trail cameras (laughs) <laughs> and it is a nightmare and it has been and it's created a lot of problems and and that's why they kind of got to where they got but maybe you guys could just give a little history of the you know the rundown of what's happened the last couple of years yeah you hit the nail on the head I'll, justin why don't you why don't you go first you want me to jump first sure um yeah, yeah you know trail cameras in in you know it's it's hit or miss because i can see i can see both sides to it um you know, I, I grew up a long time ago. It was really basic. We didn't, we didn't hunt with cameras. You know, we didn't use really a lot of technology compared to nowadays. And to be honest with you, I don't, I don't know exactly when um, trail cameras started. I, I feel like it's been probably the last 10 or 15 years. Um, but when I was around 21, 22, which is, you know, about 10, 10 years ago, um, seemed like everybody was getting into trail cameras and, you know, it was kind of exciting cause you could see, you know, different animals were out there that you wouldn't otherwise see. And, you know, it was a, a pretty, pretty awesome tool to have, um, especially for individuals that, you know, might not be able to have enough time to be out there all year long or, or whatnot. Um, but then from then till now, um, you know, especially in certain units that are that are considered trophy units, you know, the strip, kaibab, um, you know, some of these elk elk units of twenty three and unit nine and ten. Um, you know, these cameras you can almost see, you know, five or ten of them almost on every water source. Um and you know, not that that's a huge problem or anything this way or that. Um, but it gets to the point where you know, especially in the last five years on social media, um, a lot of these cameras would cause problems with hunters. You know, people would claim certain spots or, you know, even though it's public land, they would say, hey, you know, this is this is my area. Or, you know, they're seeing animals that were trophy caliber and would, would claim them even though it was public land. And, um, you know, there would be different different reasons as to why you know, they, they banned it, but I, I think a lot of it honestly, um, was to try to try to cut down on some of the, the problems of enforcing, um, you know, safe safety out there that a lot of these guys with, with trail cams, um, you know, just claiming spots, you know, it got to where there was confrontations and I could see this game and fish just kind of not wanting to deal with that and you know people would vandalize or steal or whatever and you know if i was gaming fish i i would get sick of it too and not want to have to deal with it and um 
you know, eventually you just have to unfortunately ban it altogether um, to try to cut down on some of that, um, that problem. And, you know, I, I can't tell you success wise, cause it's, it's kind of hard to, to have data from that. But, um, you know, I do think a lot of guys would set up cameras both on water or, or salt. And then, you know, I, I do think success has gone through the roof because of that here. Um, you know, and, and if you can pattern animals exactly where they're going and, and hitting different various spots, you know, it, it definitely does affect success. Um, you, Justin, but, you'd mentioned, yeah. you'd mentioned that some of these water holes having five to 10 cameras on them. I don't know if this is, uh, uh, you know, maybe some of the more exaggerated cases, but I've seen photos with like 60 trail cameras, 70 trail cameras. Like they're hung yeah. on all kinds of T posts and trees and, and yeah. And, and with the advent of the cell cam, that technology is really changing the way trail cameras are used. And, <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, I think that that's, becoming an issue um what what's your perspective on it zach well yeah i mean like like just i can kind of see the both sides of it a little bit there are certain units that are i don't know that i would i would say are the big problem units and certainly like justin mentioned the strip is one that's where you're seeing most of those photos where there might be like one one trick tank or a a, a trough or something like that and it'll have a two or three t-posts there'll be 50 or 60 cameras on it on the strip and i'd say that's by far the worst the worst unit and that's obviously where you know some of the biggest mule deer in the in the country come from every year and so people draw tags for that and they know that's likely the first and only tag they're ever going to have to hunt the strip and people just at that point they kind of lose their minds it seems like and they're they have no inhibitions about any tactic that that can be used to kill a deer um there's other units too that that they have big issues with it units nine and ten for elk uh have, have you know challenges they don't have a ton of glassing and ends up being you know people are hunting water and there is a lot of conflict i i don't know I, i've used trail cameras a little bit um shied away from it i've had a lot of fun doing it learned a lot from doing it but at the same time I I feel that it it can and and at points does pose an unfair advantage and, and kind of leans away from true sportsmanship and fair chase. Um, I, I feel like I also kind of felt a little bit of remorse in some cases too. When before trail cameras, before I ever I got into that stuff, it was there was always kind of mystery and mystique about what might be out there, what might you be able to see. And all of a sudden you put a trail camera up that's monitoring remote surveillance 24 seven out in the woods, out in the hills and the mountains. All of a sudden there is no more mystique and mystery. Like, you know, you know exactly what deer are there. Totally. So yeah, it takes I, away from it a little bit for me. So. I, I share that, uh, that sentiment, <laughs> you know, I, I, at one time owned 18 trail cameras and I used to run them for Roosevelt's and blacktails. And at one point, I just packed them up and got rid of all of them. I sold them all in a box to a friend and it, it's not because I think I'm too good for trail cameras. It just felt like it was taking away my woodsmanship skills. It felt like yeah. I'd be like, oh, there's not a buck here or I got a bull hitting this wallow, you know, and 
whatever, it, it made me not really pay attention to what was really happening. And I actually felt it, that they were a disadvantage to, to the way I was hunting. Like they were making me kind of, uh, complacent and lazy and, and, but then they mm-hmm. weren't producing necessarily for me what they were, were, and they were also were keeping me from reading track and sign and, and, you know, learning how the animal uses the landscape instead of I put a camera on a tree and I get a picture of an animal. If that makes yeah, sense. Exactly. Yeah, totally, totally. And one of the things actually, so, you know, I, I'd been using trail cameras a little bit here and there. I think I've never owned more than four or five of them and never had them all out at once. But a couple of years back, I got an opportunity to go hunt who's who's deer down in Mexico and it was kind of one of those deals where a buddy of a buddy had had a couple tags they basically leased a, several ranches down there and the way it works is like every ranch down there will allocate like the, the the government the Mexican government will allocate a certain number of tags per ranch they basically go out and survey it and they'll say okay this tag ta- this ranch can have so many tags and uh, they needed an extra guy to go to cover some of the cost of their tags. And so it was this group of buddies. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'm all in. I want to help. Let me know when you guys are going. I'll make the effort to come down. And so I, I think I made like three three or four different scouting trips down, way down into old Mexico uh, prior to the hunt. And I that was the point at which I really got kind of turned off to trail cameras because I've never seen anything like it between all these guys. And, you know, a lot of them are really good guys. We had, we had fun time and everything, but they had put out like maybe 80 trail cameras across this ranch on every single water source that was on any of these ranches had trail cameras on it. In some cases they put three, four trail cameras up and it did, it, it took away. And, you know, I remember going down there on the first trip being so excited to be in this new country, new terrain, um, and you know, I'd be circling some of these water sources and looking at tracks and how big are the tracks and where's the concentration, where are they funneling through? And for them, it was just, what's the best angle to put the camera up on water so that we can cover the, the widest field of view on, on the water. And it, it just kind of soured me a little bit having that, that much remote surveillance like that. What to me, it didn't feel like hunting as I, as I knew it or wanted it to be. So and, that was where really when my wheels started turning about it. And where the problem I think is coming from, and I've actually experienced this here in Oregon. Um, and I think it's human nature that when you have spent some money on a camera and a tree stand, you know, I've pulled up to spots for blacktail and I'm getting ready, you know, at four thirty in the morning, getting ready to go walk down in there. And a guy pulls up, and I'm like, hey, man, you know, kind of like, how's it going? Like, I'm kind of here first. And he's like, yeah, well, I've got cameras down there and I've got a tree stand down there. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's that's wonderful. But I'm cool. That's where I'm hunting today. <laughs> yeah, but that that that's my spot. And it's like, no, this is public land. And so guys get real possessive when they have some things they paid money for in the woods and they kind of want to claim it as, as theirs. And I've seen that firsthand. And that's an interesting uh, behavior to have. I mean, I, I guess I shouldn't say I get it, but uh, I've experienced it, and I imagine you guys are running into a lot of that. Um, with uh, well, and I think uh, also what I've heard from some guides and outfitters up there, and this is more related to the strip, is they're having issues with 
you got to think when you have 10, five, everybody's there hunting because they do the tag at the same time. Well, even if, if one guy decides to go sit it and they got, they got guys that are purposely going in and checking their cameras during prime time and everything just to screw the other guys, you know, like that's a, yeah. part, a big part of the conflict they're having. Yeah. And I'll add to that. Another thing that's, that's crazy that I've seen firsthand is because of the, the big dollars that get involved with some of these guided and outfitted hunts and some of these units, they'll literally bring a, a pallet of trail cameras to, to an area and there'll be the one person that has a tag and there'll be their guide. But then they have all these people that are the helpers to the outfitter. They'll hire bunch of teenage kids and pay them whatever hundred bucks a day or something and all they do like you mentioned bob is they go around even the middle of the day and they're checking trail cameras non-stop and as soon as a big old a big buck or a big bull is spotted on a camera all of a sudden you have a dozen guys within an hour on every hilltop within an hour of when that animal is spotted glassing and it's just that kind of like kill them at all costs uh army hunting mentality that it does. It rubs me the wrong way. I just don't. Yeah. I think they're they're losing kind of what it's all about. My my buddy Joaquin yeah. hunted with an outfitter in Arizona, and he said it was exactly like that. That they would be up there with like ten guys glassing, and they'd be talking to each other on radios, and they'd be moving from outpost to outpost, like just devouring the country using radios, using trail cameras, using glassing from every single point that you can glass, using four-wheelers to go bump other hunters out of areas like it's 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 yeah. warfare. Yeah. It is. <laughs> but you know, they're not to try to spend a little positive note. Not every guide and outfitter in Arizona is like that. I know, you know, there's a That's couple yep. cool ones out there that are incredible. Like I know, I think my understanding Greg Crow even spoke there's a couple outfitters that even spoke up for banning of the trail cameras or regulation, I should say. So, uh, you know, we're, yeah. we're throwing all this out there. It's just, it's, it's more information just for our listeners that, that don't understand, you know, exactly why they had to do it. Cause we get a, a lot of people from other States that are like, I don't understand that. Cause they don't have those same issues. And we're just like everybody else. We don't want more government regulation or anything, but I mean, mm-hmm. there's a good example of something had to be done. Um, and so the commission two years ago, didn't, didn't, wasn't it kind of up on the table and they, they were going to try to make it within a quarter mile of a water hole. You couldn't have a camera yep. and, and there was, there was some issues there. So it didn't, it didn't pass then. And, and then this go round, it's a complete ban of use for hunting. Am I correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. For, and you can still use them. You know, for, I mean, it's a lot of gray area. People have been saying, well, I'm going to still use it to observe wildlife, you know, just not for hunting purposes and, you know, right. whether or not it's they really be... use it for hunting. <laughs> and so, yeah, so. yeah, there'll be, there'll be some of that, but, but yeah. uh, I just, I just found it interesting and I wonder if they'll, uh, they, I know they're probably getting a million complaints. I wonder if they'll try to implement a season or or something in the future instead of just a complete ban, but, but we'll see, I guess. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a big, what I try to tell the guys in Oregon, you know, we've been battling it out at these commission meetings and, and sport group leaders, leaders meetings and all these meetings trying to get 
save some opportunity here. And, and I'm like, man, we can do it. I mean, they just banned trail cameras completely in Arizona. That is a big deal. That is a big deal. So uh, it <laughs> yeah. gives me some hope that, that uh, there is some states out there that are willing to take those steps to try to preserve some things that, you know, and hunting some opportunities. So, uh, yeah. and along those lines, so speaking of opportunity, last year, so this go, this next fall, there's a lot of units that have been general over the counter for archery deer in January, December, January, right. That are no longer going to be there. Can you guys speak on that a little bit? Yeah, there's a bunch. Sure. Okay. You want to go, Zach, or do you want me to? Yeah, you can jump in there, Justin, first. Let me jump in. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this this year alone, so last year, 2020, um, you know, there was there was eight units that were archery draw only, um, 930 tags, and and this year for 2021, um, they've they've increased that. There's now 13 units that are draw only. Um, and there's about a thousand, a little over a thousand tags now, um, for archery draw, um, which, you know, it, it sounds awesome. It sounds like, you know, we're increasing tags and, and draw units and stuff. And, and that is true, but it's also, um, closing a lot of our archery over the counter tags. Um, there's a couple that have closed for, for August. Um, and then there's, there's probably, I would say over half of them that have closed for December and or January, um, which yep. here in Arizona, January, December is prime rut, um, time for both mule deer in and, and whitetail. So, um, Justin, what you're saying yeah. is you're losing over the counter opportunity and it's going to controlled versus being uh, available over the counter. Yep. Okay. That, yeah. Nothing. Nothing uh, no, awesome no. about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, e- even no. more so is some of that's going away completely. Like not even to a yeah. draw. Like just the season is gone. Like there's oh. no more opportunity yeah. so to bow hunt. So you guys. So what he's saying is they added five controlled units, but they also just eliminated a lot of those seasons. There's wow. no more yeah. archery season. What is the idea with management there? They're they're saving those those areas for rifle hunting, or what? What's the idea of just eliminating areas? Um, well, you so, know, go ahead, Zach. Yeah. Uh, so, what it really comes down to, so they, and there's a lot of controversy around this, right? So they have numbers and records from voluntary reporting. So that's one of the first things that people get all up in arms about. So we don't have mandatory harvest reporting. So people feel like the data isn't good, but in general, the game and fish department uses statistics to, to determine whether the amount of voluntary reporting that they got is good enough to, uh, to basically make decisions from. And in the past several years, their statistics say that the the percentage of voluntary harvest reporting is sufficient to make good determinations. So in looking at that, Game and Fish basically put out like a slide deck or presentation where they went through all of the reasons why they're having these tag reductions. And it it started out with one of the main reasons is is drought. So Arizona obviously is a dry state. 
um, a lot of animals are taken over water. Not all. There's a lot of people that do spot and stock or hunt trail, like lots of different methods and tactics. But over water is is a is a big one. But um, so what they stated is that they they basically showed the trend of temperatures and rainfall over the last several years. And in the last I don't know, I'd say 10 years, Arizona is in a pretty big drought in comparison to the previous several set of decades. So. They also show the numbers of like fawn recruitment and total numbers of deer uh, are basically heading in a downward trend as we have less and less rainfall each year. So that's kind of the first driver that they mentioned in needing to make some changes or, or do something different. The other interesting thing, though, is they showed the graphs for harvest, like total number of harvests during the general seasons, which are rifle seasons. And then they showed the total number of like harvests and tag numbers for archery too. And the two kind of big key takeaways and interesting points that they showed is like right around 2014, you saw on the general seasons for rifle hunts went from around like 25% success rate up to 40% success rate. Like there, for whatever reason, right around that year, 2013, 2014, the success rate started climbing to almost nearly doubling the success rate for general hunts. Similar on the archery side, they showed maybe starting about two years before that, around 2012, the over-the-counter archery season, uh, the total number of tags that they sold was around 20,000 tags a year. And it, since 2012 to this last year in 2020, uh, it went up to about 30,000 tags. So you've got 50% more hunters in the field. And then during that same time period, the success rate also started climbing quite a bit. It went around from around like four to 5% was the average archery success rate in years past. But starting in that same time frame, about 2012, it's gone up to about 15% success rate. So not only do you have twice the number of hunters, you have three times more uh, hunters being successful each year. So that in combination with the lower deer herds just due to drought and like environmental conditions, Game and Fish was kind of forced to to make some changes. So I agree with them needing to do something, but the loss of the archery season is where we can get into some big debates about whether that was the right the right decision or if there aren't other tools like like as you guys know, using different methods and means to allow people to to still be able to have opportunity to go hunting. And I think that's probably a big part of the reason why they've seen the success numbers climb so high in the last few years is, is due to that very thing is the technology that's available to people. Yeah. So I was going to go out on a limb there and say that the, those time frames make me think the um, long range shooting became very popular amongst the rifle community and it went from being a really expensive thing to get into to a relatively affordable thing to get into and with the internet and the sharing of knowledge like long-range rifle hunting became you know a lot more available uh, around that time trail cameras became mm -hmm. a lot more affordable around that time and a lot of guys started realizing that compound archery was a lot more efficient than it had been in the past around that time would you would you agree with with that or I, I do. Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of around that time too, people, I was just barely starting. So right around that time, 2012 was when I started getting into bow hunting and started out traditional bow hunting. And I saw at the same time, lots of people picking up compound bows and going for the first time. And most of them, the response was like, 
well, you know, these bows are so good now. It's so easy. All I got to do is just shoot the laser range finder at the animal and you put it on it and pull the trigger. Like it's so there's just a lot more people getting into it that would never have gotten into it otherwise, because it's, I mean, the barrier to entry is so low. It's just, it's, it's too easy. That's my opinion anyways. Yeah. And I also want to throw out like to our listeners, you know, we got guys that are, that might be listening in Alabama or Mississippi or somewhere where they, where their game is plentiful, the opportunity is plentiful and they not may not be relating to these conversations, you know, as we talk about trail yeah. cameras or, uh, you know, these weapons. Because, you know, we all have friends and family that we uh, care about and we take out into the field that are using more technology than we choose to. And this is not to isolate or to down talk or to make anyone feel bad. Um the fact is, in some of these states, it's not sustainable. It's just not. We don't have yep. enough animals. Um, you know, guys are like, well, what's wrong with the 40% uh, uh, success rate? You know, don't you want everyone to be successful? And it's like, yeah, I mean, I think I'd love if everybody could eat game and not have to buy meat from the store. And I would love for all of our uh, uh, hunters to find success. But at the cost of our wildlife, if we don't have that much wildlife to go around, and, and that's really what it comes down to is it's not sustainable. Exactly. We, we don't have the wildlife to sustain it. And so if we get into the situation like we are in Oregon where we've, we're losing opportunity uh, on elk and, and deer because of over-harvest and uh, overcrowding, um, you know, something has to change, you know, something has to give. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and you mentioned something too, I guess probably too goes back to, I remember when, you know, Bob, you were talking about your experience here in Arizona and you just mentioned too, and Arizona is a great elk hunting state, but as Arizona residents, we don't get to go elk hunting very often. Um, you know, and, and getting a tag with a bow is probably one of your more likely options to go hunting more often. But even at that, if you want to hunt in a, a mid tier to, to better unit, you're looking at, I don't know what you say, Justin, like six, eight years between tags, something like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, and depending on what unit, I mean, yeah, at, at least six or eight, if not, you know, even 10 plus, I mean, it's, it's getting hard to draw mm-hmm. here. Um, wow. Even for yeah. a, a mid tier unit. Um, you know, like right now, for example, I've got 11 points and I've, I've been putting in for my first choice. I, you know, I try to put in for the best, you know, some of the best units, but my second choice is, you know, typically a mid tier that you should draw at least every six to eight years. And I still haven't gotten drawn yet. So, so what about, it's hard. What about if you're not trying to get the best units, like what's the likelihood of you guys getting to bow hunt every year or how, how, how hard is it to get a tag if you're, if you're just trying to get out into the field and go elk hunting as a resident in Arizona? Um, so if you're, if you're wanting just an elk, there are, there's a couple areas that it's, it's almost impossible to be successful, but there are a few over the counter <laughs> units here. Um, but you're better off hunting rabbits. <laughs> mm. And so it's, yeah. it's tough units. Um, but for example, if you want to go out and, and chase, you know, go after cow elk, um, not that they're easy or anything, but even, even just a cow elk archery tag, you're looking at, um, three to four years to have a guaranteed tag. Um, wow. 
you can't just you can't just put in and get a guaranteed tag anymore every year. It's it's a good three or four years at least. Jeez, yep. that's that would so, be, and that's just kind of, and, and yeah, it's just sort of an example though too. Of, I mean, the way that they've regulated it and the way that actually a lot of the outfitters want it, right? And I, I think a lot of the outfitters yeah, yeah. that I know that have gotten into it recently, they they. They they are the guys that they want to go hunting every year, and they realize that they they can't because of the way it is, and so they get into guiding so that they can be in the field hunting every year with somebody. But at the same time, you know, they they like the restriction of fewer tags. They want bigger and more animals, but there's something's got to give, right? I mean, you can't you can't allow every single tactic to be available to people without restricting some of the season dates or the, you know, the tags that are available. So, yeah. And so hopefully you guys can convince them, which I know it's hard once you've already lost, but it just me, myself going through this process, it's kind of just baffling that the first thing that, that sportsmen and women do not put on the table is, well, let's just make it harder so we can still go. Like, it blows me away that nobody thinks of that. And when you do bring it up, they think, well, we can't do that. <laughs> well, why not? Yeah. Like, you exactly. could have very easily yep. taken those, those areas where, okay, the deer have management objective issues because of the drought. Now they're, now you got to use the long go. You know? Yeah. Like, uh, and it's, or, 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 or take the scopes off the rifles or use a, it, a, uh, a, a real um, flintlock muzzleloader. Like there's ways to 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 take all these different weapons and take a step back and remove the technology off of them. Get rid of the um, side by sides and and walk. You know, use your use your feet. Yeah. Um, whatever trail cameras. Like why not restrict the technology to increase the opportunity? And like Bob said, some people think that that's ludicrous um but it, it, it's not it, it's so it's such basic math to 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 figure out that that could give you opportunity and, and get you into the field every year and it's a shame that uh a lot of humans don't want to think that way yeah it is it really is and i know we're kind of preaching to the choir with you guys and probably most of the listeners to this podcast but i mean I think the conversation needs to be had. I think it's beneficial for us to have it just so people that are listening can maybe start having those conversations. I, I really liked when you guys talked with uh, uh, Dick Robertson, he got on there and said something like, you guys haven't had a radical on here before. And, you know, he, <laughs> he, he didn't mince words like, and you know, he's right. At some point you need to say what you just need to, you know, be, be real about what it is and what, what the problems are. And, um, yeah, I've been kind of actually disgusted a little bit with some of the stuff that I've seen in, on social media here around Arizona. You know, we have also some like muzzleloader tags for, for bull elk that happen right after the archery season, which is right in the peak prime best time of the rut. And you rarely see anybody out there. Like most of the guys are out there. Their success rates, I think, in the like 90 percentile for those muzzleloader hunts. And most of the guys are killing them at two, three, four, 500 yards with a muzzleloader. And that's not like it's muzzleloader by the bare minimum definition possible. What's a, what's a legal muzzleloader in the state. And then we also have ham hunts, which are handgun archery or muzzleloader. And people are out there walking around with AR pistols, like literally like an, an AR platform 
semi-auto and they're claiming it's a pistol just because the, the, the stock can collapse down a little bit. It's like, it just, yeah, it's, it's sad because people are doing all this stuff, justifying themselves for, for being successful. At the same time, they're shooting their own foot off and, sh- and, and eliminating their future opportunity to go hunting. So yeah. it's, it's sad. Exactly. That's exactly what it's about. So you guys right now, can you explain the process, the review process that Arizona is going through to where we can send in public comments and stuff like that? Yeah, why don't you go ahead, Justin? You've been really on top of that, yeah, and I, I've actually sure. appreciated you posting and sharing the, the email addresses and stuff, so I can just copy and paste the, the email and, and send what I want to send. But why don't you go ahead? Yeah, yeah, I've actually gotten a lot of flack for it from some people. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I've gotten we know how, we know how that goes. Couple, yeah, oh my goodness, you know, it's crazy that there there really is a lot of anti trad stuff out there that people just do not want to give up technology and um, you know make it to where they can have better opportunity but bob are we losing you sorry i no. okay I'm here okay uh so yeah go ahead justin sure um so yeah right now um actually game and fish um arizona game and fish is kind of wanting our you know our input as hunters on what we would like to see in the future um, for hunting. And they're, they're having anyone and everyone, um, you know, give their input, their opinion. Um, you can provide stats or whatever um, to let them know kind of what we would like to see um, in terms of, of hunting. And I believe it's from uh, 2023 to 2028. I mean, they're looking at a kind of a five-year plan um of just wanting to see what we can do for seasons and and whatnot and um i'll have to look at the the date let me look at it really quick i I believe it's in september is when they're wanting all input but you can regardless send them um your information and yeah let me uh, i'm looking up that date i'll just uh tell the people listening i know we've gotten a lot of public comment on all our stuff and and there's a lot of guys that end up not writing in because they're busy and then they die he's starting to think of a you know a giant page to write like even if you take the time to write one sentence that just says please use Mm -hmm. traditional archery as a management tool to help preserve opportunity like that that gets the point across it takes like a minute just to it i mean just the the commissioners the fishing game like those they read those comments and and you know when they're reading through hundreds of comments if they keep seeing that coming up i mean that's all we can do right now is, is give give that a shot yeah absolutely thanks bob and, and i i think to your point too that even just a short concise statement like that that's that's thought out is very helpful because they, if they do get a lot of comments i think having short concise things like that will be really helpful it'll help stick in their brain and and it does take only a couple of minutes. So really ask anybody out there that's listening, wherever you can. I know it's kind of been crazy this year with how many different attacks there have been on hunting in general and seasons throughout the country. But please, please don't get weary. Um, keep sending emails and, and calls to people. I really appreciate anybody who's sent anything for us here in Arizona. I actually 
got a response back from Game and Fish this last week to the email that I had sent, and they said that they have heard um, the, the request or mention of traditional archery as a management tool a couple of times in comments, which is very encouraging. So please keep sending that to them. Um, and just for people to be aware of the process for us here in Arizona, is there's uh, it's Article 3 in the commission rules, and it specifically defines um, the definitions for methods of take and the legal weapons. And so that's basically what they're going to end up having to make a change to those commission rules uh, to have an actual definition for what traditional or primitive archery means. And then that would allow them to basically instate a traditional archery season. And that's what they conveyed to me in their, in their comments. So um, just maybe a little bit of food for thought, or if you're, you are crafting a message um, that, it is making a difference and, and it's being heard. So. Yeah. And just making it real like simple to, for, for the departments to just, you know, recurve longbow self bow with a uh, bare bow, nothing attached well, to the bow. Yep. Um, and I'm a big advocate. Me and Bob have talked about it a lot. Um, I, I don't know if it's at North Carolina or South Carolina. One of those States have like this mountain man heritage hunt um, where they're, letting west, west virginia west virginia where there oh. where, where you got the traditional bows and the flintlock muzzle loaders um and open sight rifles i mean there's a lot of guys no, rifle no, hunters it's not, op- not open sight rifles. rifles okay just flintlock muzzle loaders it's called them it's called the mountain heritage hunt and it's and it's uh flintlock longbows in their i believe it's in their bow only unit okay like so yeah it's so it's another it's another aspect like we talked about the long range guns the muzzle loaders too like they've gotten out of hand and and you know i've been on hunts in new mexico with with these guides that are saying yeah we sh- they're shooting 500 yards now <laughs> like, oh yeah yeah you know so so common, tying those together common, yep. we which we have tried in, in our meetings over the last few years trying to make it not just about traditional archery because we're a small thing and you know we've tried it every which way so yeah, however you guys want to spin it, you know, on your, on your letters, just just keep it clear, concise, and whatever you do, just send a letter. That's, yeah. That's the important part. And, and, <laughs> and ask to limit technology. I mean, going going yeah. just to, to the rifles, I, I would love to see uh, areas where when the rifle guys hunt, have a primitive area where, you know, there's a lot of rifle guys that would love to pick up their grandpa's 30, 30 with open sights and, yeah and, and get out and, and have a chance in the field. And that's going to take those thousand yard shots down to 200 yard shots. And, and the, the muzzle loaders getting them flint lock, it's going to get them back inside of 80 yards and recurves and longbows back inside of 30 yards and more sustainable for the, the wildlife and and more opportunity for the hunter and so it's it's not about pointing fingers it's just about creating opportunity yep and one thing too i i know we're getting in some of the technical aspects but man it's more fun like it's just more fun to to, to get close like the suspense builds so much higher like you know me i grew up as a rifle hunter i've taken a lot a lot of animals with rifles and when i took out that recurve I don't know. I think it was probably like 30, I don't know, 20 or 30 days straight in the field that, you know, I just graduated college. I didn't have a job yet. And so I basically applied to two or three jobs each night. And then the next morning I was out there at sunrise bow hunting. And, and when I finally killed that first deer, 
it was a spike and man, I, you'd had to tie me down to keep me from floating off the ground. I was so pumped for killing a spike and people are, are missing out big time when they start going to this. And actually I saw, I wish I could remember the name, but it was a pretty well-known outfitter on, on social media. And he had a kind of a story posted about his son and his son was on a coos whitetail hunt. He shot a giant, beautiful buck, but they shot it at, I can't remember what it was. It was pretty long distance, five or 600 yards. And his son that was like maybe nine or 10 years old got up and said like, dad, is this, is this even fair? And it actually got that guy to thinking quite a bit, like, because the kid was like, you know what? Like, we're just sitting here talking. We don't have to hide. We're not being sneaky. All we did was just like lay down and, you know, crack a Coke and, and then take the shot. And there it is. Your animal's over that, there. That kind of comes so, full circle yeah. to, to the story Justin told in the beginning of the podcast about taking that 500 yard crack at a, buck and then and then that with that same afternoon sliding into 30 yards and getting them with the rifle and coming to full circle that this the challenge is awesome and how it makes you feel and uh getting into that intimate range um with the wildlife and so yeah i i hope that uh you know people that are, are listening of course we're preaching to the choir but you know they, they will help educate, you know, other hunters from uh, uh, other verses of technology into wanting to get close. Yeah. Yep, and and for sure. on the preaching to the choir thing, I just want to make one little comment here. I know we've had you guys for a while, but, but we as bow hunters and traditional owners also need to realize, I think we spend a lot of time trying to convince the compound world or the other world that, that, we're not mad at them or whatever. And, and that's fine. <laughs> that's all good stuff. But we don't need everybody else in the world to get our point across and to make these changes in all these states. We need the traditional bow owners and the, and the, the people that really care about opportunity to get involved at their state and we can make it happen. We don't need everybody in the world. Like you guys yep. don't understand what 30 letters in the, in this process right now that they're doing 30 letters make a huge difference. And what we just went through for, for Oregon, like that's probably the comment period. They probably had, you know, 50 or 60 letters, you know, like, like these, these make big differences. We have to, we have to all get together and we have to get to work because we're losing it fast. Like our gen, being able to go bull out every year in your own state, like what happens is, Every other state, like we started this four years ago, everybody's like, oh, you guys are, you know, just everybody's up in arms. And, and then when it starts hitting their state, now all of a sudden they're like, wow, crap, this sucks. <laughs> yep. Or if it starts hitting where they go hunting every year and now they're not resident and they're limited to 5% of the tags and they didn't get a tag, they're like, oh, man, this sucks. So we understand exactly. that some people don't even really get where we're at, but just look into it. And if we stick together, man, we can we can make a difference. We're we're making a few steps here and there, but it's going to take time, take a lot of work. That's that's a super good yeah. point that Bob's making. It's easy to get to get pulled into the big tent and, and and try to make everybody's feelings you know feel good, but the fact of the matter is, you know, you got to stand up uh, for what you believe in, and you need to if you're a traditional bow hunter, you know, you don't you're not 
don't worry about hurting your cousin's feelings with the crossbow or the compound. <laughs> like, stand up for what uh, you're doing. And these people are going to come around later. When they find out that they can still go hunting with a lesser weapon, um, they're going to pick them up and learn how to use them, and, and they're going to thank you later. Um, and that's just really a big percentage of them are. That, that's just how it's going to be. And I think that was a really good point that you made, Bob. And and here mm-hmm. here in Oregon, um, we've got a, a mule deer hunt. Um, all our mule deer hunting has gone to control. There's no more over-the-counter opportunity left. And uh, we've got a traditional-only area that's one of the most popular bow hunts in the state. And it's a traditional bow hunt. And you got guys putting their compound down, like myself. That's how I got into traditional archery was I put my compound down to go enjoy that opportunity. And I, I found out uh, how awesome it is to get close to animals and how much fun it is to shoot the trad bow. So, um, yeah, you, you got to at some point, you know, sorry, uh, guys, but you got to, you know, get some balls and uh, stand up for <laughs> what you believe in. And um, like Bob said, uh, make, make your – get organized – and uh, send these emails in and have your voice be heard. Yep, be a radical. Really quick to that too is, you know, I, I want to make sure that people, at least here in Arizona, realize that we're not anti-rifle, we're not anti-compound, you know, we're not anti any of that. Um, you know, they've they've got their seasons, they've got rifle season they have muzzleloader season um archery is kind of an all-in-one season right now um and i just i just think that right now we have such an awesome opportunity to save you know some of this over-the-counter opportunities that whether it stays over the counter or if it turns into some traditional archery hunts you know it can save opportunity and it has nothing to do with being against compound or or rifle or muzzleloader it's just trying to preserve you know some of this the opportunities that are are disappearing 100 and i I think if we we can't get it done now you know 10 15 20 years down the road when seasons are are closed or done you know you're not going to be able to change it it's going to be really hard um, to try to create opportunity when it's gone and and a plus side to the folks in arizona that are listening when you do cr- create a traditional bow hunting uh, opportunity, you are going to have a lower success rate, but you are going to have less people in the field. You're going to have people who are, who are willing to uh, go at it a harder way. And over time, you're going to see a better age class of animals on the landscape because of those lower success rates. And it's going to create a very quality hunt. And I, I know guys that don't, are not even hunting with trad bows that see that and are recognizing those possibilities across the board because it, uh, that is uh, what, what happens when when you have a, a lower success rate uh, on the on the wildlife and and you continue to have opportunity you get to know those areas and and uh, puts the put let's put the hunt back in hunting absolutely yeah um, yeah certainly so- not anti not anti compound anti rifle but very much pro being able to go hunting pro That's opportunity what it's all about for me yep. yeah, yeah i just want to be that. able to go pro opportunity yeah um why don't we wrap this up uh 
promoting your guys. You guys got a small game challenge coming up. Tell us what that is and what you guys are doing with that. Sure. Um, and I'll just throw this in here really quick. I did find that, that email address for yeah. AZ Game and Fish. Um, so if you can just send any email of your ideas to azhuntguidelines at azgfd.gov. Um, and they'll take those through September 1st. Um, just wanting input and, and ideas there. And, um, hey, Justin, can you say, can you say, give us the address one more time and everybody that's listening, get out a piece of sure. paper right now, pencil, write it on a napkin on your hand and get a pen out of your rig if you're driving and write this down. Okay, Justin, one more time. All right. It is AZ Hunt guidelines at azgfd.gov. Perfect. So that's the the email. And we have until Um, September? September 1st, yeah. And I'm sure they'll take stuff after that, but they they put that date there to, you know, try to have a deadline. And that's for 2023-2028 season. Awesome. All right. We get 1,000 emails sent in. We're going to save a general season. So let's send in 1,000. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, all right. Yeah, so um, talking about the small game, um, you know, it's just a fun idea. I I, Arizona Game and Fish already has um, a small game um, challenge here in Arizona for people to participate in, and um, I was just thinking, you know, for here in Arizona and and others that want to participate, that we could kind of do our own traditional archery or primitive archery, uh, small game challenge. And, um, a lot of the details haven't been set yet, but, um, our archery deer season starts August 20th. And I was just thinking that the same time during, you know, archery season from August all the way through our, um, spring hunts that we could kind of have some fun, you know, with opportunities of hunting small game, um, if you're, you know, unable to get game, big game tags or um, be successful on big game hunts and just have fun. And, um, you know, I'm going to put up a post and, and let people know kind of some specifics of, you know, maybe getting a squirrel and a rabbit and a couple birds or something um, just to make it fun and, and participate. And we might have some uh, raffles or drawings or, or whatnot um, for those that participate and are successful and um, just just kind of make it fun. You know, I think small game is overlooked and it's it's a lot of fun, great challenge, and it gets people into hunting with a stick bow um, and stuff. So I just wanted to put a, a fun challenge out there for this fall. Yeah, and I think that that's super important. We just had Mike Harrison on. And he talked about he's doing most of his practicing with the bow and arrow uh, on small game. And, you know, it's something I'm guilty of not uh, going out and just pursuing small game. And it seems like you hear a lot of the old time bow hunters or uh, guys that are being raised as bow hunters in, in the South or Midwest where small game is something that you start with and you graduate to big game and, um, yeah, so I think that's a, a super good idea and I definitely plan to, uh, get after those, uh, those, uh, silver gray, big gray squirrels cause they are yummy. Nice. 
Yeah. 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 I think it'll be fun. Very cool. Well, uh, once again, I would like, uh, you guys to, uh, uh, check out Zach Larson at the hunt school. He's on Instagram. Uh, he's got a really cool page there doing some great things. Uh, Justin Thompson at Trabbo cronies of Arizona. And, uh, for a third time, tell us that address one more time. Let's just, let's just uh, throw that out there one more time so we can get these emails. Yeah. Sent. I actually started sure. writing it on my hand and I, and I missed the end. So, so go nice, nice and slow. One more time. All right. Nice and slow. So it is a Z hunt guidelines at azgfd.gov. And we got a deadline of September 1st and we can find out more information about that. I imagine on your Instagram page. Correct. Yeah. And I'll, I'll put a link both on there that goes directly to AZ game and fish. So you guys can read and look all that up. And we'll be sure, we'll be sure to share that, uh, on our, our Instagram trad quest, uh, on Instagram. Um, is there anything that you guys would like to leave us in closing? Um, well, I just, I want to say thanks to Justin. He's, he's done a lot because like you mentioned, we don't, there's been a Arizona traditional archery club in times past and it, it doesn't exist right now. It's kind of fallen through. We've got some passionate stick bow hunters around here that are spread out, but Justin's done a great job of putting together this trad bow cronies of Arizona and, you know, we're organizing actually some gatherings. And, uh, so thanks Justin for all you're doing to try and try and get something going here in our state. Thanks. Yeah. It's, it's been a blast. You know, I, I, I don't know how you guys all felt with, with kind of all the COVID shutdowns and everything. And, um, it just, for me, traditional archery and listening to you guys' podcasts and, um, being able to realize that, um, you know, you're, you're not alone as a traditional bow hunter and that there are other guys out there that share similar interests and, and stuff. It's just, it's just fun to realize that there's, there's more people out there. And, um, I'm really excited, you know, for the future of Arizona that we can get traditional archery, you know, big again and, and get more guys into it. And, and I think, you know, this podcast and what you guys do, um, make a big difference too, you know, to people listening and it, it, it can persuade people to, you know, try a trad bow and, and to see the fun that comes from it. And, you know, sometimes it does suck, you know, and, and to enjoy those times that you miss and you get so dang close and you work so hard to get to an animal and you miss and, you know, it's, there's rewards in that too. Um, I'm just, I'm glad that you guys let us get on here and, and have a little bit of a, a highlight for, for Arizona. Thank you so much guys for doing what you guys do. Um, it, it definitely takes uh, just getting out there and getting after it and, and, and fighting for what you believe in. So keep after it. Uh, we'd also like to thank all the listeners. Don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon. We really appreciate you helping keeping the podcast on, keeping the bills paid. Uh, thank you, Andy Ponce at Addictive Archery, Carson Brown at Sherwood Shafts. Uh, don't forget to join your local 
traditional bow hunting organizations statewide. Uh, Compton Traditional, our national traditional bow hunting organization. PBS. And as always, keep the wind in your face, pick a spot, and shoot straight. Get outside so I can fling a few.